Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Mimi Ito, cultural anthropologist and learning scientist studying children and youth new media use. We talked to Mimi about her unconventional path as an anthropologist interested in technology since the late 90s and about bridging boundaries between the academic and applied field. We talk about the social and political identity of commercial companies and the relationship between metrics and social and commercial benefit. We cover the definition and time shapes of internet culture and its significance to youth audiences. We talk about caretakers of youth and the internet, media literacy, access and trust, Google as a learning technology, as well as ethics and privacy on social media platforms. Lastly, we talk about the value of using applied social scientists when studying digital cultures. This is a long one, but it's an amazing episode. We hope you enjoy it. So welcome to The Human Show. It's great to have you. And um, so one of the first questions we ask all of our guests is, tell us a bit about your background and your career. Sure. So I'm a cultural anthropologist, a learning scientist, and an educator. Uh, and I also kind of identify as a technology studies person. Uh, my formal training is in both anthropology and education. I have degrees in both. And, you know, I really... I guess started with an interest in how new emerging technologies were intersecting with the lives of young people. And then eventually it became really important to me to not only study what was happening, but also see if the research could inform how technologies are designed and how educational programs are uh, created, uh, how educators uh, interact with young people. So more and more as I've progressed in my career, uh, I do, uh, I continue to do empirical research, but I also do a lot more research that's uh, in close collaboration with designers and educators. You've done a lot of um, research around youth and media, right? So what type of research are you going, looking at at the moment? Well, we just finished a book uh, about affinity networks. Uh, we're using the term affinity these days to describe how people are finding each other online. And, uh, you know, we've used the term interest-driven learning before for some of what young people are doing when they're uh, geeking out with each other on the internet. But our new book is going to be called uh, Affinity Online, and it is a series of case studies of uh, youth-centered online affinity groups, so with a specific focus on groups that have a lot of learning potential, that exhibit features of digital citizenship, that intersect with academic, career, uh, civic engagement, because we really wanted the ethnographic work to inform the thinking of people who are trying to make the internet and technology a positive place for kids. And it's part of uh, a growing movement that we've been part of around uh, this framework of connected learning, which is really about designing learning environments that meet young people where they are and maximize the learning potential of what young people are already excited about and interested in. 
Um, so another question that we have is we talk a lot about relationships and how people re- build relationships with technology. So like with these young people, what sort of relationships have you seen them build through technologies? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things about seeing how technology has been infiltrating more and more aspects of our everyday lives, uh, and especially among uh, young people who are exploring a wide range of cultures and subcultures and social relationships, that the only constant is really the huge variability in how young people interact with technology. So I think when people... Often they are concerned about whether these technologies are good or bad for young people. And the answer I always have is really that uh, it's kind of the best of times and the worst of times because today's technology, it kind of amplifies the existing differences, schisms, preferences, affinities, that relationships that people already have. So if you're a young person who's growing up in a privileged household with very supportive family and safe communities and, you know, um, a robust educational system, then these young people kind of have superpowers because they can go online, find whatever they're interested in, mobilize resources, you know, organize civic causes, save the world a couple times before they're 12. Uh, But then for young people who are maybe struggling who don't have strong and supportive relationships at home, uh, who maybe don't have a lot of mentorship or support for academic success, civic engagement, then these technologies can become a vehicle for amplifying their vulnerabilities, for disconnecting from uh, their relationships um, and their family and so on. So, you know, I think more and more as, you know, the, customization, the range of options and so on increases, that gap is, uh, you know, actually increasing as well. And so our work on connected learning right now is really pretty focused on issues of equity, because, you know, I think a lot of people who are in education, who are in educational technology, who are in part of internet culture, uh, we have progressive values and equity oriented values. And yet, You know, we're seeing this a lot with the current political climate that the technologies and the affordances of the technologies are often biting back at our best intentions and, in fact, creating and exacerbating inequity and creating divisions and cultural polarization. So I think uh, for those of us who care about, uh, you know, cross-cultural understanding and intergenerational understanding and equity, it's really important for us to really Uh, begin to understand how these technologies can function in very different ways in different kinds of contexts. Just for our listeners out there, um, could you just go into a bit more about what internet culture is? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good, a big question. Um, You know, and I think it's changing so rapidly. So, you know, the first internet ethnography I did was back in the days of text-based adventure games on the internet. And, uh, you know, the first generation of internet ethnography was looking at things like news groups and listservs and, you know, all of these text-based communications. And I did a study of multi-user dungeons, which are basically virtual worlds, but all just text chat. And back in those days, internet culture was really about, you know, college kids connecting from their 
you know, dorm computers and some government and academic. And it, and it was a very sort of specific and fairly educational elite demographic. And a lot of what we think about Internet culture today originated in those early years where you had, um, you know, people who were, you know, of a very specific kind of group kind of developing these norms of Internet culture, which was kind of snarky, kind of, uh, you know, about playing with anonymity and identity. And then, you know, when we did our first big study of, uh, you know, the era when MySpace was taking off, in the U.S., uh, I mean, there were a few phases. So I think, you know, in the 90s, late 90s, I was studying mobile phone culture in Japan, which is, you know, right when the mobile Internet was starting to take off. And that was its own kind of bubble that was interesting because it was driven. It was a tech trend driven by teenage girls. So it had a very unique characteristics, culturally very different than the PC-based internet culture that you were seeing in the U.S., for example. And then the social media thing took off in the States around MySpace when we were, you know, running our digital use study. And suddenly the internet became a teenager thing, which it hadn't been before. Uh, and then today we're living in a very different era where, you know, the big, you know, commercial companies, you know, the mainstream power brokers of politics, these, you know, global geopolitical battles are playing out. And so Internet culture has become, you know, not for everybody, but it's certainly become much more of an arena that mirrors the cultural differences, um, the diversity of life in general versus those early years where you only had a very specific kind of group of people online. You talk about these social media companies and they seem to have quite a lot of um, power in that in the world that we live in today. So I was just wondering, like, what's your take on what do you, how much do you think they should be concerned with the ethics involved companies that are uh, creating these platforms and sustaining them? Yeah, I think that the current sort of crisis around issues of privacy and you know, intersection with politics for the social media platforms is really an interesting moment because, you know, for many years now, the uh, divisions between what you would think of as the private and public sector have been blurring. So as an educator, for example, I have tried to talk to Google, I've tried to talk to Facebook, uh, you know, I, I can Twitter, I consider these the biggest educational platforms mm. of our era. Mm. You know, so when people think of educational technology, they think of things in the classroom, but actually Google is the learning technology mm. of our time. It's where we get information. It's where we check facts, where, you know, we find connections to experts. And yet these platforms have never seen their responsibility as being in the business of public education. And it's similar to what's happening with political discourse, where Twitter, for example, is a public utility now, but it's being governed as if it's a corporate entity. And so I think those divisions, like what you're seeing in the current uh, privacy regulation out of Europe, you're seeing in the concerns around uh, Facebook ads and um, and so on, is just society grappling with the fact that companies are 
guiding our public discourse, our public education. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be some ways in which our shared values uh, are, you know, the kind of social responsibility is baked into these platforms. But I think we're still really early in figuring out how to do that because the, the vehicles that most politicians have are, you know, corporate regulation. And it shouldn't be under the frame of regulation. It should be under the frame of, you know, these are platforms that are providing a tremendous amount of value uh, to uh, culture and society. And it's not simply about regulating and limiting their ability to advertise to us, but what is the positive values that these companies give uh, to, to the public and how can they be rewarded for those positive values, not simply regulated for exploiting consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question that kind of links into that, um, which is regarding power and agency. So one of the things that we're we're exploring with these platforms, because you were mentioning earlier that Google doesn't see themselves as an educator, but maybe this is something that the people have assigned to Google and use Google according to how they want to use Google. Do you know what I mean? And, And taking some kind of power over getting the technology and making it fit their purposes. Um, so I was wondering, that is one side of the question, power and agencies between people and this technology and how much um, they kind of intersect. And, and the second one has to do with, with governance and capitalism. Because so many of these platforms are now just more than just businesses, like, like what you mentioned. Um, but then what type of structure should these companies have to kind of or the role in society that kind of fits what they are right now. Because if you look at Facebook and if you look at Twitter, they are almost like an infrastructure for connecting that um, that goes beyond the commercial service. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I'm, I hope I managed to phrase it properly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, commercial companies uh, are designed to serve their customers in a way that is more direct and transparent than public institutions in some ways. Like if you think of something like representative democracy in theory, it's supposed to be serving the people. But in practice, uh, you know, there's a huge breakdown in trust because the pathway from the voice and agency of citizens to actual policies is really convoluted. Whereas in the case of companies, if they're not serving their consumers, if people aren't happy to use the platforms, they're going to know immediately and they are very responsive. The problem with the commercial sector, though, is that the metrics by which they're evaluated are not based on providing um, genuine uh, pro-social value to society as a whole. And it's they're really being uh, uh, evaluated based on, uh, you know, commercial metrics of profit. And those don't always align with what is actually valuable for society. So, you know, platforms are, you know, they'll always make more money if they're serving wealthier constituents. They will also, uh, you know, um, there are policies around, you know, advertising for keeping data proprietary and so on, which don't serve the public interest, but serve the interest of the companies. So, you know, in a lot of ways, internet companies are, despite the strong commercial incentives, um, able to provide a a lot of value for people. But there are definitely places where uh, 
you know, those two things don't intersect. So you get a lot of um, design decisions within mm-hmm. platforms that mm-hmm. are really just intended to maximize clicks and uh, repeats or like you get, you know, a little a real concrete example is if you're on YouTube, then they're, they tend to serve up the next videos and recommend new things that people are you know, are likely to keep kids like super engaged and not very uplifting content, which is a really different metric than if, you know, it's more valuable that you serve up really high quality, you know, uh, content to people than content that is constantly Mm -hmm. like pushing desire and this, these reward systems, the constant notifications that come in through social media. These are not things that actually improve the quality of life for people, but they, the engagement metrics are all based on getting people to stay on the site to watch ads. And that is not really the social benefit uh, that, you know, say a public institution would be looking for. And how how would you how do you see from your side as an anthropologist working with these um, companies? Do you do you see that social scientists or anthropologists have a can have a role in in kind of challenging a bit these metrics? Or um, yeah, how do you how do you see working in that environment? Yeah, so you know these big corporations are diverse, right? And you know a lot of the people who work in corporations are uh, trying to do good work, who believe in justice, uh, who believe in equity and a lot of values that aren't necessarily the same as, you know, pure profit maximizing Mm -hmm. kind of approach. And so, you know, within uh, corporations, the, the divisions that I tend to collaborate with are either research divisions, which are really in the business of producing knowledge, just like any other academic institution and you know there's industry researchers have been you know really important in you know not just because they're great researchers but because they have a unique kind of access to technology and technology driven experimentation so I do a lot of you know I consider industry researchers among some of my closest and most informative colleagues uh And, you know, I also work with divisions within corporations that are dedicated to uh, positive educational values or values around equity. So, for example, you know, Google has a really incredible group of people who are working around issues around equity and computer science, which, you know, they've done some of, you know, really important research. They are running programs that are really designed to bring Uh, new kinds of young people and diversify the pipeline to tech, which I think is, you know, is great. Uh, And, you know, my passion project right now is actually an independent nonprofit uh, called Connected Camps, which is delivering online learning experiences to kids in the game of Minecraft. The Minecraft uh, education folks and actually the Minecraft team overall is just an incredible, uh, you know, group of people who really care about young people, who care about creativity, who are working to empower teachers to use new digital tools and, you know, project-based hands-on learning. And, 
you know, whatever you think about Microsoft as a company overall, <laughs> there are groups, individuals, divisions within these companies that are doing, you know, really not only high quality work, but work in the public interest. We also on this show, we kind of um, ask people about their path into applied anthropology and how do you kind of as an anthropologist um, make an easy transition into applied anthropology and working with design teams? Yeah, so um, I was wondering for our listeners that are kind of contemplating that path, if you have any advice um, that you could give. I think the question of as an anthropologist, whether you want to stay in a more academic theory driven context or an applied context is really about doing a gut check on what's important to you, what motivates you, who you'd like to be in conversation with and what you want to see the outcomes of your work are. So within more academic anthropology and, you know, social science more broadly, you know, the community that you're really serving is a community of fellow academics, and that's who you're speaking to. It's about doing empirical research and theory building is the most rewarded aspect. And so, you know, I think it's really important that there are a group of anthropologists who primarily see their job and their, the people they serve and speak to as fellow academics. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of the important breakthroughs and uh, theory have come from folks who primarily identify as uh, academics who speak to other academics. But if you're somebody who is, you know, interested in, you know, changing the world and seeing the direct impact of your work on, you know, young people, in my case, um, or educators, then uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very different mindset. Uh, and, you know, I have worked primarily within academic institutions, but I have had um, fairly unconventional positions, or I've worked, you know, within schools of education, for example, which have a much more real world focus to them. Uh, and, you know, I run projects, I've actually never had an article published in a peer reviewed journal that wasn't a special issue. So, like, I haven't been part of the traditional sort of um, academic status game. Uh, I have never had a tenured track or a tenured faculty position. I don't, I'm not necessarily evaluated in the same ways that a traditional faculty member is. Because I do research full time, you know, I've had a lot of output and productivity. So, you know, I'm... I can be reviewed by academic metrics, but when I, especially when I was doing my early work, uh, you know, I was one of the first people to say that the online world could be an ethnographic field site and to do my dissertation around uh, technology. And, you know, if I tried to get something peer reviewed in an anthropology journal, <laughs> then, you know, I would have stalled out. Uh, and so I've always taken a bit of an unconventional path where, you know, I follow the things that I think could make a difference in the world and to move hearts and minds. And, you know, I love just geeking out and understanding patterns and doing analysis. So it's not that I don't like intellectual work, but I find it much more satisfying to be able to translate that work into ways that can really be helpful for people in a concrete way that can bridge communities. So not, 
you know, I wouldn't be happy if I was always just talking to other anthropologists. I find it incredibly stimulating to talk to people from other disciplines. I learn a lot more and I love collaborating across research and practice, across public and private sectors. And so I think it's not an unusual disposition for an anthropologist because a lot of people get into anthropology because they like crossing boundaries. So why wouldn't you cross boundaries between theory and practice and, you know, public and private. So, you know, it may just be the little bubble I live in, but a lot of my friends in anthropology are, you know, I don't know if they would consider themselves purely applied, but definitely people who are bridging the academic Mm -hmm. world and industry and other sectors. In your early career, you said that you were doing um, ethnography and things that were quite new. I was just like wondering, was it quite hard for you to be doing like I think at that time wasn't doing ethnography in these spaces quite a bit different. Was it a bit of a challenge for you to kind of be like between the academic and that sort of world and having to deal with like other people's opinions? I think that I've always enjoyed maybe pushing the boundaries a little bit, you know, to, you know, it's partially I grew up between Japan and the U.S. so I never fit in. Uh, So it was never, there was never a question of whether I would fit into a dominant culture. Uh, So I always gravitated towards subjects that were understudied, overlooked. Um, You know, my master's thesis was actually about the New Age movement in California because I thought it was so weird and wacky and fun um, before I started doing the work with new technology. Uh, So um, I think the hard thing was really not so much, uh, you know, whether my academic peers valued what I was doing, but really more the pragmatics of how I could find, you know, positions, funding, institutional support for the kind of work I did. Uh, And that's where, you know, I ended up being pushed fairly early in my career to start, you know, I interned at Apple and at Xerox Park. And, you know, I was lucky to have family members who were in the tech sector. So, um, you know, I built a support network that went well beyond academia from the early stages of my career. And I think that's what kind of sustained me. Um, You know, I was lucky, again, in that my areas of specialty were technology, education, and Japan, which are all very well-funded areas of research. So without those external funding streams, uh, it would have been really hard for me to sustain my interests and career. Uh, You know, it's, um, yeah, I had to kind of, cobble together this unconventional uh, trajectory. And, you know, the reality is that our academic institutions are incredibly conservative in terms of hiring and educational programming, but funding streams tend to be more progressive because funders want to support the newest and greatest things. So it's like everybody wants a date, but they don't want to get married when you're doing something really new. So it was just like I could, you know, get a lot of support for, you know, things like studying what teenagers are doing with this crazy new technology. But am I going to find, you know, a tenured faculty position in the study of digital culture in 
you know, the period when I was trying to get my first academic positions, which were, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and that, you know, nobody is hiring for digital ethnography in the late 90s. So that's where, you know, I think I had to be much more entrepreneurial than what a traditional academic would have done. And um, going back to more anthropology again, um, for you, what gives you like a unique perspective on like studying sort of the social media and these new technologies over, say, another discipline or, say, other researchers in the field? Like what makes anthropology, you know, give it that certain insight? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's fairly trite, but I think it's seeing these new cultural worlds from an insider's point of view is the unique uh, value of an ethnographic perspective uh, is to, you know, in my case, there's, because I work with teens more often than not, uh, they're a particularly kind of demonized or exoticized group, which you know, it's not the same as going to uh, some remote island, but there's kind of similarities in trying to really speak their language, view the online world from their point of view, and to explain what seems like crazy and irrational in ways that the dominant culture will understand. And so I think those fundamental uh, stances of anthropology that insider focus, the empathy, and a bias towards studying less empowered groups. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the signatures of uh, not necessarily ethnography as a method, but the combination of ethnography as a method and anthropology as a discipline has traditionally had a strong commitment to, uh, you know, um, giving voice to the weak and marginalized. And I think that is sort of a consistent perspective that I've had. Now, of course, there are anthropologists who study powerful people and dominant groups as well. And, you know, it's certainly not a monolithic approach, but I think even for those studying the dominant culture, uh, there tends to be a bias towards still uh, supporting the agendas of the weak and the oppressed. And I think that has, um, you know, been a traditional disciplinary commitment that you know, even those of us who work with big corporations and on new technology uh, is often still there at the core of our identity. Um, I have a question about studying the digital communities as um, with ethnography, as more method um, connected. I've heard different opinions, whether, you know, you go, you, you do digital ethnography means you need to go in the digital space and stay there and even build digital connections to people completely disregarding the um, non-digital ones. And I've heard approaches that say, no, you have to blend the two because the digital is just part of your whole life. So you are, if you really want to understand somebody that acts in a digital space, you need to know them and engage with them offline too. Um, what are your thoughts surrounding that topic? Yeah, I think the question of whether you're really studying behavior purely through a mediated online environment versus a face-to-face -face mediated environment, it's really just about what questions you're asking. Mm -hmm. I don't think one approach is more superior than the other, but you can't answer certain questions uh, without access to different kinds of settings. So, you know, I try to get away from this idea that 
Well, definitely get away from the idea that you automatically privilege the face-to-face. Like, I certainly think it's possible to do robust ethnographic work that answers important questions that is conducted purely online. But there are definitely some questions that you can't answer without access to -to face-to-face context. So, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, you have to just design your methods based on, you know, you can, I think... There are some really legitimate kinds of analyses I've seen about, um, you know, how a particular online community, a gaming community, Second Life, for example, what is the logic for what brings those people together? How do they interact? Do discourse analysis. And there is a logic and a consistency to it, especially because Uh, There are often communities where the primary point of reference is actually their online identities. Now, if you want to understand how it's intersecting with their identities in everyday life, what is the segmentation, if your interest is in the whole person as embodied in that physical person, then obviously you can't answer those questions through the online ethnography. So, for example, with the digital use study, we did a combination of both where some of our researchers were looking primarily or exclusively at online interaction and others were visiting young people in their homes, Mm -hmm. in their communities, in their schools, so that we were able to at least compare and sort of cross-tabulate the differences in those experiences so that if you interview somebody like my study of anime fans was primarily around the affinity identity. It's not, it wasn't purely online, but I wasn't like asking them about, you know, their family life and, you know, a lot of other settings, uh, you know, I really just wanted to understand the affinity network itself. It wasn't the individual people Mm -hmm. that was the object of my study. Now, other researchers like Dana Boyd and my team was really interested in how youth identity overall and youth culture was intersecting with online life. So, When you're looking at youth culture and status negotiations, the school is the dominant context that that's being worked out for kids. So you can't really simply sample from a given affinity network and understand how real life popularity, dating, you know, relationships with parents is operating in the lives of kids. So I think in my case, I wanted to understand anime culture. That was the appropriate frame. For Dana's study, she wanted to understand, you know, pure dynamics uh, more generally, and she did a completely different form of recruitment. Um, so you've kind of like studied two very different areas from like Japan to America. So I was just wondering, have you seen like a difference in how the youth have adopted these technologies between the two areas and cultures? Yeah, there's huge differences, you know, by nation, region, and how technology adoption has happened, uh, which has to do with a lot of idiosyncrasies in, you know, the industry, you know, telecommunications infrastructure, business models, the local culture. Uh, You know, when I was studying the growth of the mobile internet in Japan in the late 90s to early Uh, 2000s, you know, it was very interesting because the U.S. and Japan were almost polar opposites in terms of post-industrial settings where the Japanese kids were totally, you know, mobile internet focused, handheld device focused. The U.S. kids, 
were totally PC focused. You know, in fact, Japanese kids would attach like a handheld keyboard to their computers because their input was their, you know, thumb input was so much easier. And after I moved to the US, you know, 10 years went by before American kids started texting. You know, the US was way behind Europe. Uh, way behind uh, East Asia. Uh, and I thought that maybe they were on just separate paths, but there, there's increasingly a kind of convergence, not necessarily in terms of the actual platforms, like Japanese kids use Line rather than Facebook. And, you know, there's differences. But when you look at the underlying drivers of human behavior, which is that you want the ability to have Uh, persistent intimate contact with your closest friends you want to have affinity networks for interest groups and you want to have a bullpen for your overall social network that there's a very consistent set of social drivers that every country that has gone social and digital you see people tapping those same drivers Uh, You know, when we were still seeing how this played out, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, Japan was just this Galapagos of the Thumb tribes, and it was just weird. But in fact, you know, once the technology kind of evens out, the behavioral patterns are remarkably consistent, even though the companies, the platforms, the historical trajectory might have looked quite different. You you spoke quite a lot um With your about your work in the space of the affinity networks, and I was wondering um, if you look at social platforms like maybe LinkedIn or Facebook, um, how do you see these platforms kind of working with this concept um, through their design? Yeah, the professional networks are really interesting, and it's sort of the one kind of affinity that I have done the least work on, just because I tend to work with young people who are not as deeply immersed I mean they're sort of they're either not working or they're early in their careers so you know I think the the professional networks do have a different dynamic to them some have the characteristic of affinity networks like I would say academics for example although they're professional networks because we're so strongly identified with our professional identities and it's we've chosen these areas because of personal interest. A lot of how academic networks work um, and specialized, specialized networks work have a lot of the characteristics of the intentional networks that I've studied like gamers and fans and things <laughs> like that. But I do think that, you know, professional networks that are a little bit more instrumental or driven by, um, you know, advancement uh, rather than interest have different qualities. They're just not arenas that I've looked at very closely. Have you studied by any chance like the slime communities on YouTube? Because I think for me, this kind of intersect the two, you know, because I've seen so many like young kids uh, being like entrepreneurs and making and selling these slimes and, and building like this these very strong engagement communities with their followers on link, on YouTube? Yeah, so I would say that in general, we're finding the blurring between what people have, how traditionally people have carved up kind of play and interest mm-hmm. and commerce and career identities. So... And I think this is going to accelerate even more with the advent of automation and the fact that 
you know, there's a lot of kinds of work and professions that are probably going to go away as something that's like a purely instrumental uh, sort of labor. Uh, so you saw that early on with a lot of um, digital media production where amateur producers were obviously being hugely successful. That's starting to be, or that has been monetized to varying degrees of success through platforms like YouTube. Uh, but there are a lot of other kind of peer distribution platforms for media, music, you know, every form of media now, which in the early years, it, that was purely non-commercial. Uh, the amateur production of media and now there's like this huge gray zone where you're going to get somebody who you know might have a day job as a, a you know postal worker but then creates videos at home for fun and might earn a little bit of money or you might have somebody who uh, you know, has a day job, but their primary what you might even call their professional identity is actually in off-market labor or maybe they're you know a musician and they drive for uber for money but they really see themselves as a musician and a lot of these platforms and alternative distribution channels have opened up a space where people can remix those three components of their identity in ways that they couldn't before so we're also seeing that kids you know like one of the biggest youtube celebrities is like this little kid who does toy reviews you know and uh, there's just a very different space now for young people to engage not only with civic activism and creative production, but also early entrepreneurial activities, which, you know, we noticed even in the very early years when YouTube and, you know, LiveJournal and so on were just, you know, starting to take off that, you know, they're, even if they're not directly commercializing it, they're learning skills of, how to have a public identity, how to get followers, how to get attention. Um, you see uh, kids publishing their art on a platform like DeviantArt, where you know mm -hmm. actually their ability to get feedback and gain followers can translate into a portfolio for art school, or they might actually directly monetize some of their work. Uh, so I think that has been kind of an ongoing and very interesting trend that's been picking up more and more as uh, content distribution uh, and commercial content distribution is going digital. We had um, a psychologist on a show a few episodes back and we, we discussed the topic of young kids on the internet um, and their support network offline, you know, like their family or, or close relationships. And how do they navigate the exposure and life on, on the social platforms when they become successful or... or context depending on context become really dependent on the networks that they found online and and how how can they kind of um yeah well what's the right thing to do for um for a for a, a parent or um or caretaker um how can they navigate um yeah how their child um, uses the internet yeah i mean i think as a parent you have to make a decision as to what level of comfort you have with your kid having a public life that's not necessarily sealed uh, and under control. And that has been moving younger and younger. Uh, you know, that was why parents were so freaked out when kids started texting, started, uh, you know, 
putting their music on MySpace and connecting with others. Uh, you know, television was bad enough, but it was coming at them. This one, you're like putting their identities out there. And so I think we're still in an era which is a little bit like what you see with child actors in an earlier age or child athletes who get a lot of attention, performers. It's not like this didn't exist before the internet and that you have a certain class of parent, like the stage mom, the the parent who wants their kids to go to the Olympics. Like there's always been a genre of you know, extraordinary young people who are pushed into public visibility at an early age. So it's not as if this hasn't happened before. It's just become a little bit more democratic, mm-hmm. how that mm-hmm. access looks or not, maybe not more democratic, but the, you know, the, the types of channels that you could put your kid out there have expanded. Uh, so I think a lot of it is still being worked out. Um, you know, I think, those kinds of parents, the stage moms, the pushy athlete moms and dads, you know, also get a lot of criticism that is in many ways similar to what you're seeing with the little YouTube celebrities and so on. So I think our culture has always had an uncomfortable relationship to young people or especially small children uh, having a really robust public life and not having a normative childhood. Um, I personally don't feel judgmental about that because I think there are certain young people who just are extraordinarily interested in something and are, you know, precocious about wanting to specialize and go really deep into something, uh, which I think is great. You know, I don't think there's any reason we have to be ageist about who can be a public figure. Uh, I think we do, you know, want to be careful about unintentionally pushing kids into um, public visibility in ways that they might not have necessarily seen the consequences of. And, you know, digital culture is very unforgiving because you can't erase things once they've gone out. So there's definitely new risks. Um, But I don't think I personally am Uh, categorically opposed to kids having a public life. And I think in many cases, if not most cases, it's probably pretty healthy. And we've talked a lot about kids online, but I was wondering, like, what's your opinion on kids that are not online or, like, say their parents stop them from engaging in social media or um, these sort of new technologies? Like, what sort of consequences maybe for their identity or even relationships might there be, if any? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely young people who by choice don't participate in a lot of social media and, you know, for reasons of their choosing. Uh, I think that, you know, all of these things are sort of about the readiness of a particular child and their disposition. But if a parent delays giving kids the ability to self-regulate, to exercise choice, to manage their own attention, to have the power of self-determination, then it actually cripples the kid, uh, even though the intention is often to protect them. Because it's just like your kid who, you know, you don't let them have sugar until they're, you know, three years old, and then they go to a birthday party and suddenly encounter ice cream. There's going to be the moment where they have to start making wise choices about, what they eat, what they view, you know, that they should turn off Netflix and go to bed, 
you know, that this is the last video game tonight. And for different kids and families, that balance point is in a different place. But there's no way that you can seal your kid off from what is the dominant culture. You know, there are families even in my generation where kids weren't allowed to watch television and you know, there's nothing wrong with having a set of family values that is about, look, we prefer to read books and play board games rather than, you know, spend our evenings watching television. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But you do have to equip your kids with the ability either to have that strong grounding and values that aren't part of the dominant culture or to be able to make those choices themselves. And I think the um, trying, like, the current move to even require kids who are 15 to get parental permission to use, I mean, to use like certain online platforms is developmentally completely inappropriate. Because by the age of 15, if your parent is making media choices for you, there's something wrong with that family. There is something developmentally incredibly wrong. And it doesn't mean that the parent should be vacating their responsibility to advise and guide your child. But if you are if your child doesn't know more about their interests and their media that they're consuming by the age of 15, then something is broken. Mimi, you were mentioning earlier about the connection uh, between these technologies and, and education and how young people access sources of information to learn about things. Um, and I was wondering, in, in, to which extent is that... Um, better or worse than it was before. I, I remember when I want to research something, if I go Google directly and then I pop up to the Wikipedia page, is that how do you evaluate what is a good source of knowledge when you access the internet, especially as a, as a young person, as a teenager? Right. So I think the question about whether there's bad stuff out there uh, is a really important one. And the, um, the way in which we establish trust about sources, not just for young people, but humans in general, like this isn't something to the fact that some of our institutions that were designed to provide credibility and trust, uh, whether it's political institutions or academia or the media that is eroding is actually probably the more fundamental problem that we're facing right now. I mean, definitely the ability for anyone to put stuff on the internet is creating a whole host of new problems. But You know, unless young people are surrounded by people, others who are kind of modeling what it means to be not the critical thinker in the sense that I'm not going to believe anything that people who aren't like me believe. You know, that's the fundamental problem that um, you don't have a certain skepticism towards your own beliefs and preconceptions to me is the more fundamental problem that predates Like you can teach kids all kinds of skills about what signals credible information. I do think that form of media literacy is important, but I think there's a more fundamental problem that there is um, that people are not growing up in a context where they're trusting the right kinds of institutions and voices. And those of us who are in elite institutions are not communicating our authority in ways that people will hear or want to listen to because we're being hypocritical often about our own sources of authority. So I think that is actually one of the biggest problems of, of our, um, of our era right now, uh, 
Now, that said, I think it's really important to just do level setting and say that access to information and social connection is good. Like there's just there's no question about that. Like it's just good that you can find information that you don't have to, um, you know, especially for people who have limited mobility, which is most children, uh, you know, the fact that they can find media that they're actually interested in, the fact that, you know, we sit at the dinner table and whenever there's something that we um, don't know as a family, we ask Alexa or we ask our phones and there's like, we have a zero tolerance policy to ignorance now. Like you're not allowed to not know things. You're not allowed to be poorly informed. And, you know, it's easy to kind of romanticize the era when we had our Encyclopedia Britannica. But yeah, I mean, the amount of knowledge and the depth of knowledge you can get on anything is just so much better, you know, than and the children's literature and young adult fiction, the kind of, you know, my teenage son will sit there, he'll watch a movie, and then he'll go on YouTube and watch experts debate, like, camera angles, and, you know, look at the whole biography of the actors, and, you know, that, it's just unbelievable what humans have access to as far as knowledge, and so I think it is important to do some level setting about the fact that this era of abundance is just for people who care about knowledge, it's unbelievable. One last short question, because you were mentioning at the beginning of this uh, podcast that your book will be uh, released soon. Oh, <laughs> it, I don't know about soon. I, it's written. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> while. It's still in production. So uh, I think it's slated for the fall release. My most recent major publication is the uh, report called From Good Intentions to... Oh, no, it is... We do have it, actually. Yeah, you can find <laughs> on the NYU Press site. Available 11.23. Yes. Okay, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that is great. And if there's anything else you want to mention about your upcoming work or events that, that you'd like our... Um, listeners to know about? Yeah, so we have our annual Connected Learning Summit, which is happening in August uh, at the MIT Media Lab. We have this book that's coming out, and then the other one link I'll give you, the things that I'm trying to plug, is my report on equity and learning technologies. Mm -hmm. And then I am always trying to plug Connected Camps, which is my nonprofit. So I'll give you a link to that. We um, we are kind of like it's all one hour in, but you, if you'd like to to talk a bit to connected camps, we'd we'd love to to kind of know more about it because you've just um, briefly talked about it. But if you want to speak a bit more to it, what what exactly is happening there? Um, yeah, what type of work do you do with them? Yeah, so Connected Camps is a nonprofit that I founded about three years ago, together with Katie Salen, who's a games educator, and Tara Brown, who's active in the maker movement. And it was really an effort to uh, put some of the principles of connected learning in practice uh, by building a sort of two-sided platform where we bring uh, young people who are enthusiasts in some technical specialty, uh, coding, Minecraft, engineering, YouTube video production, and uh, 
training them to work with young people uh, and to infect them with not only the passion of the affinity network, but also to create a productive learning environment uh, for young people. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we were modeling more sort of organic affinity networks that have positive learning dynamics, but we added this kind of layer of, uh, you know, sort of recruiting and training people who would normally be leaders within the affinity network, but actually incentivizing them and giving them the tools to work with young people. Uh, And a lot of our reasons for doing this was, well, first of all, it's an amazing learning experience because the little kids love nothing more than to be working with big brothers and big sisters who are experts in the things that they're passionate about. So it's like naturally motivating. And of course, it's all about hands-on creation and genuine project-based learning. Um, But it was also because for a lot of young people, their first online experiences are around gaming communities that are often not the most positive in terms of their values and how people treat each other. So we feel like in order to make internet culture good, you have to actually be involved in young people's early exposure to learning experiences. And because a lot of adults see their role as simply regulating access and policing access rather than being involved in the actual communities, we thought it was really important that those of us who are actually really engaged in gaming culture and internet culture. We're providing a service to other parents who might not want to spend most of their days learning Minecraft, uh, an environment where, you know, when their eight-year-old is ready to go into their first multiplayer online gaming experience, that they're learning positive digital citizenship and values and what it means to not harass other kids and to help other people and work together and not break each other's buildings and all of these things. And that that bifurcation between the commercial platforms and the learning platforms means that the teachers are not doing that fun stuff. And the commercial providers don't really have an incentive to make these environments positive for learning. So we're trying to build a network that bridges that gap. And concretely, it's just You know, we basically have an online community that families can sign up. So there's always like really great young adults on the Internet to work with your kids on cool projects. And then we work with schools and libraries and community centers to serve kids who aren't able to access these communities from home. Wow, that's actually really awesome. And we'll make sure to link them all in um, your profile when that goes up as well. So I think that's it for us because we've kind of taken up all your time. It's been great speaking to you. Me and Karina had like a lot of fun. I feel like I learned so much. And um, yeah, thank you for coming and talking to us. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is this was a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm really happy about the work you're doing. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.